0: Welcome to the New England Law Review On Remand podcast. I'm Volume 49's Executive Online Editor, Tiffany Knapp. The New England Law Review is the flagship publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit our website at www.nesl.edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to Newinglrev.com which is N E W. E-N-G-L-R-E-V There, you can find our most recent online publication in On Remand. Today, we are joined by Louisa Gibbs, New England Law Review's former executive online editor and a recent graduate of New England Law Boston, to discuss her comment entitled EEOC v. Bow Brothers Construction Company, Expanding Same-Sex Sexual Harassment Jurisprudence Beyond Sexual Desire, which will be published in Volume 48, Book 4. Her comment discusses the Fifth Circuit's EEOC v. Bow Brothers Construction Company decision, in which the court found the evidence sufficient to establish Title VII same-sex sexual harassment based on sex stereotyping. She argues that although the Fifth Circuit was ultimately correct, the court was incorrect in failing to utilize its sister circuit's views in the decision, and instead simply focusing on the evidence. She argues that the Fifth Circuit's analysis would have been much stronger had it addressed or even acknowledged that the Ninth and Sixth Circuits have strong arguments supporting and opposing same-sex sexual harassment. In its shortcomings, the Fifth Circuit therefore failed to provide adequate judicial protections for men subject to same-sex sexual harassment. Louisa, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: To start us off, Louisa, could you provide a brief background regarding Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the reasons for its enactment?
1: So, Title Seven is the primary statute for employment discrimination. It protects against race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. Uh, its foundations actually came from a desire to protect against employment discrimination with regards to race. And so the primary drive was to treat all employees equally based on color. Funnily enough, sex was never intended to be included in Title Seven. In fact, it only got added at the last minute while the statute was on the floor in Congress, and a lot of people were against it only because they felt that sex was such an important aspect of employment to be protected. It deserved its own statute, but for some reason it managed to get through, and so with that, there was very, and is today, very, very little legislative history concerning the guidance as to how courts are to treat sex within Title Seven, thus leading to a lot of issues, as we're discussing today, like same-sex sexual harassment and so forth. So sex is a very loaded word in terms of Title Seven that the legislature left with very little definitional guidance with which to follow.
0: So you mentioned same-sex sexual harassment. Could you expand on that a little bit and give us a little context on the EEOC case
1: as well? Certainly. So I think it's a little bit better if I just begin to. Disc- describing the facts of EEOC, the Bow Brothers Construction Company. It was a Fifth Circuit case, and it involved the plaintiff, and the defendant, which is the company, but represented by the plaintiff's supervisor, who were both males, which is the important factor to this, and the plaintiff was sexually harassed in a way that he was made fun of for exhibiting feminine behaviors the primary one being that he would take wet ones into the portable lavatory, and a lot of the other men, very much driven by his supervisor, would make fun of him and make derogatory comments to him for being an acting feminine while on the job site, and also exhibited homophobic gestures towards him, as well as remarks on a daily basis. And so, at least in terms of same-sex sexual harassment, that's what you're looking at. Typically, sexual harassment, you think of a male employer and a female employee. But it also takes place and is included within a same-sex context. And so in terms of the facts of Bow Brothers, the plaintiff filed a complaint with the EEOC, in fact, informed his superior of what was happening, He was sent to a different work site and then eventually laid off. So a lot of the lower court complaint involved a lot of retaliation, and ultimately the case whittled down to the issue of same-sex sexual harassment and the case that was ultimately decided in the plaintiff's favor.
0: Really quickly, could you just explain what
1: the EEOC actually is? Certainly, Tiffany. So the EEOC stands for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It's a federal agency that accepts employment discrimination or general employment complaints, and it is a separate body that will evaluate the weight of those complaints and try to help mostly plaintiffs try to resolve those issues with their employers or otherwise proceed through court in litigating those matters. Thank you, Louisa. Before addressing EEOC v. Bull
0: Brothers, how have other circuit courts interpreted Title VII in regard to same-sex sexual harassment? Specifically, could you discuss both the Ninth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit's positions on the matter?
1: So many of the other sockets have addressed same-sex sexual harassment. The reason that I bring light to the Ninth and the Sixth is that they're the two that could have made the biggest impact on the Fifth Socket with this case, but the Fifth Socket very bluntly, quite frankly, did not take up that opportunity. So that's why I focus on these two cases. And so the Ninth Circuit, the case was named Nichols, and in that case it was the male food server being harassed by his male supervisor for exhibiting feminine behaviors, and he was also being physically harassed as well. In the Sixth Circuit case, entitled Bisseg, it actually had very, very same broad, facts it was a male employee a male supervisor and the male supervisor harassing the employee for exhibiting feminine behaviors and so these two would have very much aligned with the fifth circuit and in lieu of the facts i just described for euc v bow brothers and both of their positions being that same-sex sexual harassment did take place you explained in your comment that the
0: fifth circuit weakened its analysis by disregarding the ninth and sixth circuits treatment of the matter Rather the Fifth Circuit aligned itself with the Supreme Court's reasoning in Price Waterhouse. Could you please explain to us how they both weakened their argument by disregarding the Ninth and Sixth Circuits and then strengthened
1: it the Price Waterhouse? So with the Ninth Circuit we looked at the closeness of the harassment to gender itself, gender and sex. And what the court did with this case, the Fifth Circuit did, was mention it in one sentence. And then moved on. It didn't go into the case, even though the facts were very much in line. Both had male supervisors, both were male employees, both being harassed based on exhibiting feminine behaviors, yet the court failed to really take that case and make it in line with its own facts. So I found that that very much weakened what Title VII means when the Ninth Circuit found it was discrimination based under Title VII, very much said that clearly. With the Sixth Circuit case, the Wassett case, the court, and this was, I personally found, quite an interesting avenue to get around the issue, if you will, found that the rule of orderliness prohibited the court from considering the Wassett case as controlling. So the rule of orderliness, for anyone who's not a complete nerd about civil procedure, it prohibits a three-judge panel from overruling another panel's decision." So this rule of orderliness is a very minutiae rule that is not referred to very often, and so I quite frankly enjoyed a little bit the Fifth Circuit taking this rule and using it so that it did not—well, it frankly prohibited itself from being able to analogize the case with the Waset case, also exhibiting very much the same facts. Also, finding in line with same sex sexual harassment based very much on Title VII. Now, the court did a very interesting analysis in terms of utilizing Price Waterhouse being the founding case in sexual harassment itself. So, the court really drew on Price Waterhouse and the public policy reasons for Title VII, which I already discussed the whole idea of bringing equality and non discrimination into the employment world, but what the Fifth Circuit then did was pull on this case called Oncali, which relegated same-sex sexual harassment into three different evidentiary paths of proving the case. And so while the Fifth Circuit found that same-sex sexual harassment did happen, and built up a lot of its opinion on the public policy reasons of Price Waterhouse, which was between a female employee and male employer, not same-sex sexual harassment, just regular sexual harassment, if you will, but then diminished the importance and the power of Title VII by relegating the case into a evidentiary path that in the first time it heard the case, didn't think it existed, but later finding so. And so it built up its opinion to really encourage and empower Title Seven, but then it relegated the decision into a procedural looking at the quantity of the evidence as opposed to the quality and what it means. Now,
0: you obviously believe that the Fifth Circuit failed to serve the principles of Title Seven. How did it
1: fail to do so, and what path did it opt to travel instead? So, the long and short of it is that the Fifth Circuit chose not to acknowledge or even consider the state of the ninth circuit's president but instead chose to rely upon the procedural technicalities that would have allowed the court to analogize and distinguish the facts and make its opinion stronger by saying that same-sex sexual harassment violates Title VII, as opposed to whittling down the issues and facts into a little procedural avenue of, yes, you can pursue it down on or but not this avenue, so, such an analysis would have bolstered the opinion and made clearer the split between the appeals courts so that ultimately this split issue amongst the sister circuits would call the Supreme Court's attention to it and thus be able to have a consistent, concise definition and opinion as to how to treat same sex sexual harassment. So, the opinion itself fails to serve the principles of Title VII by treating same sex sexual harassment as more of a complex, plaintiffs have to jump over more hurdles, as opposed to sexual harassment itself, typically just between a female employee, male employer, can be a female employer, male employee, but traditionally having those two separate sexes, whereas those are much easier to go to court and prove. Same-sex sexual harassment is a very new concept to law and the courts don't necessarily know how to treat it. Now, as I mentioned, the Fifth Circuit originally decided there wasn't enough evidence, or just there wasn't same-sex sexual harassment. It didn't meet that barrier. Whereas the second time of hearing it, they decided it did, but based on the quantity of the evidence that was presented, as opposed to the fact that these rather heinous acts of physical harassment and verbal harassment were being projected to this employee simply trying to do his job, and the court took that, not for its substance, but for the quantity of how often it happened, and then was able to decide that same-sex sexual harassment did happen. So while it's certainly a positive step for the Fifth Circuit to join with the Ninth and the Sixth Circuit, that same-sex sexual harassment is harassment does qualify under Title VII and is entitled to the same treatment as race, national origin, and color, there's still a number of steps in between that just shouldn't be that. And maybe that's just because it's such a new concept to this area, to the law, or for whatever other reason. It's supporting, but it's also holding back, and that's just a difficult struggle that I think really ultimately requires the Supreme Court's involvement as to how same-sex sexual harassment should be treated.
0: Thank you so much, Louisa. Your comment sounds very interesting. What are you doing now that you're awaiting the results of the bar exam?
1: Well, I'm actually recently became an AmeriCorps member. I'll be working at the Women's Homeless Shelter in Boston, Rosie's Place, working with the guests there in housing and family matters. And so once I receive my results, Hopefully, they're positive I'll be in America up to Tiny with them and working at Greater Boston Legal Services.
0: Your results will absolutely be positive. Thank well, you again for joining us, Louisa. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Be sure to watch for Louisa's comment in Volume 48, Book 4 of the New England Law Review, which will be available on OnDemand, viewable at newinglrev.com, which is N-E-W-E-N-G-L-R-E-V.com. I'm Volume 49, Executive Online Editor, Tiffany Knapp. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review Honour Man podcast.